Welcome back to Second and Short. It is February 8th, 2023, and we had the Pro Bowl this past weekend. We've got the Super Bowl coming up on Sunday, and we've got a ton of stuff to talk about today. NFL news, college football news. We're going to be bringing you a new segment called Do You Remember? And we'll get a little bit more about that later. And... Of course, finishing it out with Stake Your Claim. Before we get into the Pro Bowl, I just want to remind everybody, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure you follow, leave five-star review on the pod. And if you're listening on YouTube, give it a like, give it a subscribe. Keep yourself updated on everything. Hit that notification bell on YouTube. And follow us on all of our socials. Uh, There's a link in the podcast description to all of our social accounts. Follow us on there, and that'll keep you in tune with everything we're doing over here. But without further ado, Brock, let's go ahead and talk about the Pro Bowl a little bit. It was okay, but I actually kind of like some of the events, so let's start off best catch. And did you watch any of the Pro Bowl? Because it was interesting, and I wouldn't blame you for not watching. Unfortunately, I did not get to watch most of the Pro Bowl. I saw some of the... uh quarterback challenges but that's about it yeah it like it was things where if I didn't like I didn't watch most of it I kind of went back and watched a lot of it through highlights and on Twitter and stuff but it's something where like if I missed it I wouldn't have cared but Amon Ross St. Brown takes home the best catch competition wins it for the NFC over Stephon Diggs in the AFC and the catch that won it was actually kind of cool. Um, I kind of wish it was more, like I know it's the best catch, so it's supposed to be like the dunk contest or whatever. I wish it was more like doing something cool on the field. Because yeah, I'll just explain Amon Ra's game, or you know, winning catch, which was Amon Ra's brother, Equinemius St. Brown, a Bears wide receiver, jumped off of a trampoline over like a big pad, caught like a, a two-yard toss from Michael Vick. And then in the air, Equinemius tossed the ball to his left, and Amon Ra jumped off a trampoline over the Lions mascot and made the catch, and that won it. I just like, I don't know, that, that event just wasn't for me. It seemed so like, like there's not much you can do. Yeah, and I kind of think the reason they did this is because, like, it almost kind of like the whole, like, TikTok thing now. It's not something that takes a lot of time. It's just for fun. You know, they, they can't really hurt themselves doing it. You know, they're putting you out there just for it to look fun for the highlights. Yeah, this was definitely a highlight-driven thing. And, like, the first round of the catch competition was all pre-recorded and, like, it was like Justin Jefferson at um, the the Eiffel Tower thing in Las Vegas, like catching a ball off of it and like doing the gritty, and then Amon Ra like jumping in a pool, and a couple others. And like I don't know this this one didn't really appeal to me. It didn't seem like a great event, but there was some that I really liked. Um, let's talk. The next one is the Move the Chains event. Uh, the AFC took that one home, and this one was. By far the dumbest event of all of them. (laughs) So, in this one, this was my explanation of it. A bunch of linemen 
offensive and defensive, run 10 yards to the back of a wall, and then they pull a bunch of plates off of these arms on the wall, and they put them in buckets, and then once your, your like, pull is empty, they run to the other side, and they grab, like, the uh, first down markers that have, like, handles on them, and they have to pull the wall that they just took the weights off of 10 yards. Huh. <laughs> it was, like, the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen because it's just, like, a yeah. bunch of guys pushing plates off of a pole and then just, like, playing tug-of-war against nobody. Yeah, I think people would rather see, you know, the two lines go against each other in tug of war. Yeah, that would have been way better. Yeah, they they definitely should fix that for next year. <laughs> or honestly, move the chains, like, just run a two-minute drill, see who's quicker, quicker to go downfield. Yeah, yeah, like, get rid of, like, the... First of all, get rid of the, like, pushing the weights and making it almost more like a like a race. Get rid of that. And do it more like endurance. Like, see how long a couple of linemen could, like, push that that wall. See how long they could just keep going. Yeah. And uh, something I'll, I'll just I'll kind of wait to get on my full why I think doing thing. But I know there's the this whole new form is for preventing, you know, unnecessary injuries that could possibly occur, you know? Yeah, and that's I'll talk about that a little bit uh, once we get through all the events and we kind of voice our opinions yeah. overall in the Pro Bowl. But yeah, it, it's obvious that like this is just to try and you know let all the guys have fun. So I don't blame them for you know making this event how it is. But uh, the NFC wins the Gridiron Gauntlet, which was just a relay uh, of a couple of different things. They had like some like defensive linemen r- jumping over walls and going under tables and. Uh, some offensive linemen doing like sled pushes, stuff like that. Um, and then this is the event that I actually liked probably the most out of like the kind of mini game type events. And this was kick tac toe. Um, so you had a kicker, and so the AFC wins the kick tac toe event, and it was Justin Tucker, and then the Raiders punter AJ Cole, and the Titans long snapper Morgan Cox. And what they had to do was, like, line up. I think they were all at varying distances, but they had, like, a tic-tac-toe board on the wall, and, like, the long snapper had to, like, get down and long snap, like, up into the wall. And so, like, the spot he hit was, like, their spot, and then the punter had to punt and hit a spot, and that would take off a spot, and then, like, the kicker had to kick, and, you know. This one was actually kind of entertaining to watch. Primarily the long snapper. I was supposed to say, yeah, that definitely looks pretty interesting to watch. I kind of wish I would have got to watch that one. That yeah. that does seem like just again for fun. It looks like a fun thing to get to do. Exactly, and it like it's it gets the guys like you know the kicker, punter, and long snapper. They don't get to do much in the Pro Bowl. Like <laughs> it's a fun way to get them like get them something to do while they're there. Yes. All right, and then dodgeball, which has been going on for a couple of years now. Uh, the NFC defense wins dodgeball for the NFC. Um, that one was pretty funny. Uh, I know, like, Saquon got drilled in the face. Um, a couple of guys made some, like, ridiculous catches. 
things like that. It was a funny one. It's always fun to watch guys that like a lot of them aren't quarterbacks. So watching them try and throw a ball is hilarious at times. <laughs> yes. All right. And then the longest drive competition, which is just, you know, who can hit the golf ball the furthest. Uh, Jordan Poyer won that one for the AFC, a 320 yard drive for the win. Wow. That's pretty solid. That's like a, <laughs> that's like a real golf drive. Yeah. I'm pretty sure um, there was somebody, maybe it was like Preston Smith, somebody like that. It was like his first time golfing. And he just like, he took him a couple tries to even make contact. And then when he did, he hit it just like straight to the right. And it went nowhere. <laughs> and then yeah, um, yeah. precision passing event, Derek Carr won it for, or not won it, but it was uh, the three AFC quarterbacks. So Derek Carr, uh, Tyler Huntley and Trevor Lawrence uh, versus the NFC quarterbacks, Geno Smith, Kirk Cousins, and Jared Goff. Uh, Derek Carr had the highest score with 31 and, and took the win for the AFC. That one was cool. They had like the, uh, obviously the moving targets and, and one of the moving targets was like a big pad on a drone. They had the buckets deep, Like it, it was actually a, a pretty cool setup for it. And then flag football was pretty solid. Um, I think that flag football was very good for this. Um, The NFC won the first game out of three. AFC takes game two. And then the NFC wins the final game to take the lead in overall points and win the Pro Bowl for the NFC. So the NFC won the Pro Bowl. I believe that means that every... I want to say the payout was every player on the winning team gets a hundred thousand. Uh, all the losers get like sixty thousand, so it didn't change anything. Uh, and then I just want to get like kind of your thoughts, your ideas about you know what what does this mean for the Pro Bowl as a whole now? Well, one thing I want to say is that I've heard a lot of a lot. Uh, I've heard a lot recently, and tons of people have said it, and just from passing and on in- internet and everything, they're like, oh. It's- it's not a real game. I'm not going to watch this. And I was like, did you ever watch the Pro Bowl? And they were like, well, no. And I was like, exactly. The Pro Bowl was never really like a thing people actually watched. It was just kind of on. It was kind of for the players to have another football game. And I'm sure the players like another game to where they can, you know, play football, full contact football. Because, you know, contact football is a lot of fun. But these are all, you know, real professional football players. That's their entire job. So why put them at risk? for injury and, you know, just this, just the little things that could affect them later on in their career, even for the, you know, just right then, why I do all that. And anyways, it's just for fun. So all this, it appears to me like they just wanted them to have fun. And the players, obviously, from everything, it looked like they enjoyed themselves. No one got injured. It was just a fun time. They got to go to Las Vegas and have fun. <laughs> like, what else would you want to do? Yeah, like it, it. That's exactly what I was thinking. Is like it looked like the players were having fun. The last few years, it seemed like nobody wanted to suit up and play a game because it means nothing. And like watching it with all the rule changes they've made over the years, it didn't feel like actual football. And then, like it, it kind of seemed like you know, with this format, the guys could just go out all night, get up the next day, get an IV or whatever, head to Allegiant Stadium hit their peers in the face with a dodgeball, play a seven-on-seven flag football game, 
and just enjoy themselves. Yeah. I mean, again, to reiterate, this is something just for fun. And this is something that uh, every uh, now football is very different from every other most every other sport. Like it is a very physical and very much a full contact sport. Now, as opposed to like basketball or baseball, you could play in all full game because there's not as much con- there's not nearly as much contact, but and so you don't have to, you don't run the uh, risk of as much injury. But for this, like this makes so much sense because <laughs> you just want everybody to be safe and you want everybody to have fun. Like that's the only reason I'm doing this is for fun. Yeah, I think it would be interesting if the Pro Bowl was like mid season. Uh, then like, cause like, think about how many guys missed out because they're in the Super Bowl or they're hurt or they're getting an off season surgery. Like a lot of guys miss out on the Pro Bowl because of it, and that kind of sucks when you go to watch it and you're like, okay, the AFC, wow, they have really good quarterbacks like Burrow and Mahomes and Allen and Herbert, and you know the list goes on, and it's like, oh, the three representatives are Tyler Huntley, Trevor Lawrence, and Derek Carr. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of nice also to have just like, this is going to sound very rude. I mean, they're obviously known quarterbacks, but kind of just like absurd quarterbacks and just like random players in there because it's like, huh, let's see what they can do. And then, you know, you have Derek Carr, like you said, who went out for the precision and what was it? You said he scored 31 points? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a pretty good job from him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's just kind of like, you know, like, when we think of other all-star games, like the NBA all-star game, like those are the best guys in the league. And the MLB all-star game is the same way. And when they put this at the end of the season, it, it like nobody wants to play, first of all. Nobody cares about anything that's happening whatsoever because all these guys make millions of dollars that $100,000 or whatever you want to give them it's not going to do anything that's pocket change but <clears throat> i i do think that this format works well because it's at the end of the season yeah it's you know it's basically a 3 day festival for the football players to go out and just do whatever they want yeah you know it's going out there and again I, not not to sound like I'm repeating myself here, in which I am, but they're having fun. They're enjoying themselves. I mean, that's kind of what football is about. That's what all, all, being a part of this is, is having fun. Because the Pro Bowl originally you know, was another football game. Like you said, a lot of people didn't want to play in it, whatever. They didn't care for playing in it. And that's how, again, possible injuries happen. There. This, it's literally three days of games. Who doesn't want to be a part of three days of games? Yeah, it looked like the guys were having fun, and I think that's the biggest part of it. Um, anything else you got to talk about with the Pro Bowl? No, not really. Just that I, I'm actually excited to see this again next year. I think this is at just having these fun games like the kick tac toe. That's like you said, letting the kickers and uh, special specialty players uh, like kickers, punters, uh, and the long snappers get their opportunity to do something like that is really good for them because they don't really get the spotlight that often, especially long snappers. Yeah. And I would like to, as we said, get rid of that move the chain event and get Yeah, I don't something. know about entirely getting rid of it, but yeah, changing it up a little bit, make it a little bit different because like it was lit- like it literally took like a minute. 
<laughs> yeah, I think something that would be that would take about a would literally take less than a minute for both teams would be you run if they want to move the chains quite literally go out there and run a two minute offense, you know, where they you put your offense out there and they do the you know driving down the field in a two minute, you know, to score at the very end of the game. Just do that and just see which team looks better. That's very that, I think that would be entertaining for people to watch, just offense versus air. See, you know, what you know, what they can do, see how far they can throw the ball, you know. They sh- I do want to see that they I think they should bring back the long throw competition for the quarterbacks. Yeah, I think that does like, you know, it'll put a couple of guys at risk for injury trying to throw out their arms, but I think in general, you know, be smart about it. And it Yeah, like I would I would love to see Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes go against each other in a long throw competition. Yeah, it would be fantastic. <clears throat> All right. Well, well, I think that's about to say. Yeah, yeah. There's not too much to say. Uh, I'm I am glad that Alvin Kamara played pretty bad because the last thing we needed him is uh, to do is go to Las Vegas again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He learned quickly that uh, the saying does not always stand. Uh, everything that happens in Vegas does not often stay in Vegas. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into some college football news. Uh, quite a lot has happened uh, over the last week. So last week we came to you talking about how Alabama was just losing their mind over who they're going to hire at coordinators. Well, they've both been decided. Uh, Tommy Reese, uh, Notre Dame offensive coordinator, has accepted the Alabama offensive coordinator job. And I personally, I really like the move. A young offensive coordinator, a good program, and he's making like a, a quote-unquote lateral move. But it's a significant step up when it comes to the magnitude of his job. You know, being the offensive coordinator at Alabama is very different from being the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Yeah. Um, to go off what you're saying is I 100% agree. It is That is two completely different worlds. And, yes, Notre Dame's a big nationwide name, brand, whatever. But Alabama still has the GOAT as their head football coach. And I would, I personally think if you want a career, you want further career, and Nick Saban gives you that opportunity, you, I don't know if you can pass that up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like the the one thing that I do kind of have questions about, and it's not really questioning the job, but more questioning like the future of Alabama football, is that um, he's run some very good offenses, but Alabama has like a very rich history of like very talented running backs and they utilize them very well, especially um, in the past few years, they've had a a couple of passing guys like Bryce young for these last two years. And uh, Mac Jones was a bit more of a passer, but um, Reese, he's run more pass heavy offenses being, uh, you know, a former quarterback at Notre Dame and quarterbacks coach. um, You know, he, was just obviously going to run pass-heavy offenses. But, you know, does this mean that Saban is looking for more of a pass-heavy offense? Or is it that he trusts that Tommy Reese can kind of make a balance of both? I think I think it's the latter. Uh, I think he really does trust that Tommy Reese can come in and <clears throat> use both sides of the ball very effectively. And especially – with coming off of losing Bryce Young and having to go with a new quarterback, I think this who uh, Tommy Reese now is going to have to he 
understanding the situation Alabama's in, they're going to have to rely a little more heavily on that run, at least for the first half of the season, that run game until they can get what whatever quarterback they decide to go with in the system and comfortable. Yeah, I think that there is a, a good chance that Tommy Reese is rather successful at Alabama. He's obviously got the the recruits and players and just uh, resources in general to be successful. Um, it's just like I think that coaching for Nick Saban is a much harder job. It's probably the hardest job in college football, uh, just being one of his assistants. And only some of the best guys in college football can do it. Guys like Kirby Smart and you know Lane Kiffin, as much as we hit on Jimbo Fisher, he's one of them. Like guys like that are practically bred from this, you know, the beast of Nick Saban. Yeah, uh, like you said, being under Nick Saban, I mean, I've seen several people talk about it. it is one of the hardest things ever because being under him, not only does he expect you to, you know, for perfection, but he, like, he expects you. Not only does he expect the perfection you feel like you have to be perfect because of the fan base and everybody that around you is it's all it's all Alabama's standard is way above everybody else's much like Georgia's now and it's you do you have to do so much more to just feel like you're being successful make sure you're putting enough work yeah for sure and you know speaking of guys that have a lot to prove their new defensive coordinator, uh, Kevin Steele, former D.C. at Miami and Auburn, is now the Alabama defensive coordinator, and it seems like he's coached at every program under the sun. I got a quick rundown. So he played at Furman and then played at Tennessee, graduated from Tennessee, just about immediately started coaching. So he's coached at Tennessee, New Mexico State, Oklahoma State, Nebraska. He coached with the Carolina Panthers coached at Baylor as the head coach for three years. He went like uh, something real bad. I know his first season, they were like one and 11. And then, yeah, but that was also <laughs> during the uh, era of all the sexual assaults and all yeah. that alleged against the program. Yeah. It, it was a bad time to be the Baylor head coach. And then he coached at Florida state after that as the linebackers coach, which has kind of been his primary job throughout this is linebackers coach slash defensive coordinator. He actually uh, worked for a little bit at Alabama, went to Clemson LSU. Then he got the DC job at Auburn. And then last year was the DC at Miami. And I just, I'm very surprised by this hire. Yeah, I'm surprised by this hire because one thing with uh, Nick Saban that I think has been a constant is Nick Saban likes his defensive co- coordinators to be young and fiery. I mean, think about it. When Will Muschamp was uh, hired at um, LSU, he was very he was still a very young coach. When Kirby Smart was hired at Alabama, young coach. Jeremy Pruitt, not super young, but still younger. Uh, well, Kevin Steele, he's a uh, Pete Golding, the most recent one, very young when he got hired on. And now Kevin Steele, he's, I believe, at 64, and the complete opposite of what he usually goes for in a defensive coordinator. But obviously Nick Saban wants someone – he thinks he needs someone on his defense that is very experienced to deal with uh, this group he has coming in. 
Yeah, and it's a guy who's already worked for Saban at Alabama, so he understands the program. He knows what it's like to coach there with those standards. So I think, yeah, you're right. He was going for a guy with experience. I think my problem is last year at Miami, I know Miami wasn't great, but his defense was ranked 65th in FBS in total defense. That's lower than the other Miami. 65th in total defense, though, isn't great. But in comparison to that Miami team last year, especially they had a lot of young guys too, I think that's pretty good. I mean, he was only there for, what, a year? Yeah, it was his only year there. So yeah. it's not too much it to takes, base it off of. Yeah, uh, I mean, if, if we go back and look at his time at Auburn, his time at Auburn, he did a, uh, a very good job at Auburn. I believe he was uh, – I, I could be wrong – uh, totally wrong, but I'm pretty sure last time uh, I looked it up, he, he had a great uh, time there at Auburn and had some of Auburn's best defenses in recent memories under yeah, him. I believe he was there from 2016 to 2020. So uh, not, you know, the, the prime years of Auburn from, you know, the past couple decades, but still uh, some solid teams, some solid defenses, and a team that was like actually contending in the SEC for a little bit. Uh, yeah, so he's coached very good teams. It's just about, you know, like, what is he going to do now? He Like, this is obviously going to be the most skilled team he's going to have as a defensive coordinator. It's just about, you know, what he brings to the table. Yeah, and obviously there's something there Nick Saban sees that uh, we don't see exactly. But I think that is what Nick Saban is going to kind of prey on, right? There's that 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 thing he sees in him, and I, I, if I had to guess, it has to be that experience and the vast experience he has of 40 years of coaching that he's kind of zoning in on and looking forward to is his experience and wealth of knowledge to be brought into these younger guys. And I think he feels if he brings him in, it's going to be an immediate impact on this team as opposed to if he brings in a younger guy to build up his defense. Yeah, and to kind of uh, tail off of that um... – Sources were saying that Jeremy Pruitt was consulted on the Kevin Steele hiring and that most likely um, he will be the long-term replacement at Alabama. So I'm not really sure why Jeremy Pruitt really needed to be in the know. I know he got interviewed, but it's weird that they're kind of keeping him in the loop on it. It almost seems like Maybe they're just, you know, experimenting with steel, and if things don't work out, they'll just bring on Pruitt. I'm really not sure about, you know, what this this means for Alabama. I think I, I don't know exactly what that means either. I find that very interesting, but to me, I feel like Nick Saban wanted Jeremy Pruitt because he was his coordinator before. He saw the success he had before, but. It's still all the situation he's having to that's that's looming over his head from everything that happened at Tennessee, and I think that's what prevented him from hiring Pruitt. So he went for another very experienced head coach on that was on the market, I, or he <laughs> forced to go on the market or be on the market, I suppose. Yeah, and you know, with Kevin Steele's departure, and that brings us to our next thing: uh, Tulane defensive coordinator Lance Guidry is expected to become the defensive coordinator at Miami. And honestly, right now, a coordinator job at Miami is something to look forward to. 
They've got one of the best recruiting classes this year. Obviously, a, guy, a lot of guys leaving in the transfer portal, but at the same time, a bunch of guys coming in. Miami's got a bright future ahead of them, and it's you know it's happening right now. Um, so it's a good place to be. Yeah, I, I think that's a that was a uh, very a very smart move for him getting over to Miami. Like you said, a lot of young guys, a lot of young good talent there in Miami. And it's a great area to keep a lot of very good defensive talent comes out of Miami. So if you want to build up a reputation as a good defensive coach, that's a great place to go. Yeah. And uh, let's get into a little bit more coaching news. Uh, Byron Leftwich, uh, the former offensive coordinator of the Bucks, uh, has reached out to Notre Dame about their offensive coordinator vacancy. And him and Marcus Freeman have remained in contact but, you know, I kind of see this as a, a step back for Byron Leftwich. I think he did a, a solid job as the offensive coordinator for the Buccaneers. I think that he's a better coach than being the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Yeah, I think he uh, – I, I agree. I think he could be better. Uh, but right now, I mean, he probably needs a job. And whatever he can get, he can get, you know. Yeah, I, I get that for sure. I just feel like he's better than that. He could probably get – an offense coordinator job somewhere else in the league, or, you know, I, I do kind of see this as maybe Byron's uh, base, like his entry-level job into head coaching in college football, which, you know, maybe he wants to do that. Maybe that's his next step. Um, and, yeah, you go to a big-name program, be their offensive coordinator, you do a couple good things for a couple of years, and then, you know, next thing you know, you're the head coach of a Power 5 school. So, I think yeah. it's a good idea for him. I just feel like he could get a better job. I mean, for all we know, no one else in the league is – everyone's like, eh, he kind of just did okay. Why not, you know, test out these other people? And he's just saying, all right, maybe I just need to go back down, just prove myself again, and then go back up for, uh, you know, another OC job, maybe a head coaching job. Yeah. And then uh, another guy in the running for the Notre Dame OC job is Philadelphia Eagles quarterback coach Brian Johnson. He's going to interview for the Notre Dame job after the Super Bowl is over. Uh, I don't know too much about Brian Johnson, but um, you know, being the Eagles quarterback coach, obviously he's done a, a pretty fantastic job with Jalen Hurts. So uh, he's got that on his resume. Yeah, uh, I have to agree. There's not too much I can say on him except for from what we've seen with the Eagles this year and especially at their quarterback. Uh, <laughs> he's done a good job. Yeah. And uh, next little bit, uh, another move. Chris Partridge returning to Michigan as an assistant coach after three seasons as a defensive assistant at Ole Miss. I just kind of want to know, Brock, do you know much about Chris Partridge? I didn't know much going into this. Um, I only worked with him for one season, as you know. Uh, of course, he was here at Ole Miss for three seasons, but I uh, seasons, but I've only was part of the team for one. And I mean, uh, from what I know, he's a really great guy. He really does. Uh, I mean, like most coaches, he loves his players. He loves his job. Um, so I, I, I mean, he he was a good coach when it came to his position. In my opinion, I just don't know if he was ready for the whole. The be the defensive coordinator, and it, he just didn't really get to show. You know, he he wasn't ready, so he just couldn't have been, was not as good as what he could have been. Yeah, that that's, and that's probably why he went back to Michigan. Obviously, he had already worked uh, at Michigan for a couple of years, 
and now going back, it's kind of just like a, a safety pillow kind of move where it's like, okay, he probably, you know, isn't happy that uh, Pete Golding's come in and he didn't even, you know, get the job, whatever. And so this is just his way of like, okay, let me, you know, change the scenery around just a little bit and see what I can do from here. Yeah, I think that's uh, what it is, is he just needs kind of like a, almost a reset, just go back to, basically go back to his roots and, you know, get comfortable again, and then go back out on his own. Yeah. All right. And I believe this is our last bit. Uh, No, there's a little bit more coaching news after a couple things, but uh, UCF and Gus Malzahn. Uh, they brought in ex-Charlotte 49ers head coach Will Healy as a, an assistant head coach and senior offensive analyst. I think this is a great move. Uh, I know it, you know it's two group of five schools, but Gus Melzon is actually doing a pretty good job at UCF. He had them, um, I want to say they were ranked for a little bit last year. Uh, obviously, they're a contender in the group of five and you know just a solid FBS program in general. So bringing in head coaches as assistants, I feel like like it works very well for a lot of teams. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a prime example, Nick Saban. Um, he, that tends to be someone, uh, type of coach he, uh, he's brought in the last few years, rehab and sent him back out. Lane Kiffin, for example, Steve Sarkeesian. Um, oh, and there's a couple others, but my mind just drew a blank. And he just, you know, kind of, quote, rehabs them, and then they go back out, get a head coaching job elsewhere. But uh, they always do a good job when they come back down. Uh, I think it's the experience of being at a head coach and then getting to go back kind of down again. What I was saying, Chris, part three is like back down to your roots, what you're comfortable with, and just getting to where you are actually ready Yeah, to move out. All right, let's talk about a little list. I saw a Bleacher Report. Uh, the writer was Morgan Moriarty, put out a list of a couple of quarterbacks in the 2023 recruiting class with a shot to start as freshmen. Uh, the list starts off with Missouri quarterback Gabari Johnson. Um, it, it's The first couple aren't really all that notable. Um, yeah, he's got a chance to start because Missouri just sucks. So there's always a chance that a new recruit will start. Kind of the same spot that Louisville's in here um, with Pierce Clarkson out of St. John Bosco, a four-star recruited quarterback going to Louisville where they've struggled at the quarterback position, which just kind of makes sense. Um, and then uh, I do want to uh, – anything you want to add about those guys? Yeah, those two definitely have a good jo- uh, good chance to start again for, you. Uh, uh, you know, Piggyback off your point, it's Missouri. Um, they're, you know, a five and seven team usually. You know, there's always potential for a young starter to come in and just, you know, blow everyone's tops off and get a get the starting job. Uh, so that, that's always a solid possibility. But as well, uh, I mean, at Louisville uh, quarterback going to the draft, so there's a solid chance uh, they they have a potential for uh, him to start this year. Yeah, and then the next guy on the list uh, is a guy that I actually do think has a, a pretty good shot. Uh, Stanford brings in Miles Jackson. He's a three-star recruit, but uh, I think with Tanner McKee going to the draft, he's got a good shot to start. Their other two options are Ari Patu, 
who only completed 14 passes last season, and then kind of more of a Wildcat-style quarterback, Ashton Daniels, who accounted for 195 total yards last season. I think that bringing in Miles Jackson, he's got a chance to start, maybe not the first game of the season, but uh, I got a feeling he'll start at some point in their season if he plays well. Yeah, and Stanford right now, they're just hurting. They need something. So if he can get anything going for this uh, if he can come in and get anything going for the Stanford team, I think he could end up being starter. Yeah. And then uh, UCLA is bringing in, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Dante Moore, um, the highest rated quarterback recruit in school history. And, you know, with Dorian Thompson Robinson uh, headed to the NFL, you know, he's got quite the shoes to fill. Dorian Thompson Robinson is now. Uh, the leading passer in UCLA history. So there's a chance he starts. You know, other guys didn't really get much of a shot. I know they did transfer in Kent State quarterback Colin Schley, which I think was a great move. So I think he's probably going to end up starting. But, you know, Dante Moore's got a shot as one of their highest recruited quarterback recruits um, in the school's history. They're definitely going to give him a shot. Yeah, I was about to say uh, exactly what you said. He's a five-star recruit, which means, you know, most five-star recruits at uh, at a lot of schools can come in and start right off the bat, especially somewhere like this where their quarterback is no longer there. He's moving on. I think he's got a, a pretty solid chance to start at least one game or get probably get some good playing time this year. Yeah, and then the next guy on the list was the one that I probably had the most questions about which is Oregon State bringing in quarterback. It's, it's Aiden, either – Chills, Chiles, Chiles, I don't know. Uh, one of the three. It's C-H-I-L-E-S. But um, I don't know. It's interesting because DJ Uangalile just transferred in from Clemson. I have a feeling he'll start the whole season, and then you let the guy, um, the, the freshman, start the next year. I, I know that DJ hasn't you know, showed out. But I do think he's kind of primed for a good year in in Corvallis, and I don't know. I I just I don't see a true freshman starting over DJ. Yeah, uh, uh, especially a player who came in started. Uh, didn't did he he started as a true freshman or a redshirt freshman? Uh, DJ. Yeah. Uh, he was a, he was there for one season with Trevor. Uh, he started one or two games when Trevor got COVID. And then um, was the starter the next year. So I, I believe he's he was either a red shirt freshman or a sophomore when he uh, first uh, started a uh, full season. Yeah, but, I mean, you have a quarterback who has started three years now, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, I believe three so. years. Three years in the ACC. He's been to uh, the playoff games, been to championship games. He's definitely going to be their starter. And I think exactly what you do here is this one is a question is pretty pretty questionable to me to have on the list because especially someone with the uh, resume that DJ Uyangale has and he's going and he's going to be more comfortable on Saturdays as opposed to a uh, you know true freshman out of high school. And then the next on the list, Tennessee quarterback Nico. Okay, I'm pretty sure I learned how to say his last name the other day. Um, Nico, it's Iama. Leava or Leava. It's not Ayama Leva. Yeah, I'm not even going to. I'll figure it out when he's in college. Um, I don't know. 
I, I got to see him actually play at least because Joe Milton looked great. And I think he's most definitely going to start the first couple games. I think that Nico is extremely talented, but I feel like just let him get a year, let him get, you know, take a big lead, put him in the game for the second half, whatever, let him get some reps. But I, I still think that Joe Milton probably needs to be your starter. Yeah, again, this is much like I said with uh, Oregon State and their uh, freshman coming in and having an experienced quarterback. They have Joe – yeah, they have Joe – I almost said Joe Burrow. I meant to say they have Joe Milton, a very experienced quarterback, played at Michigan, now played at Tennessee, started four games for Tennessee, I believe, including a bowl game blowout victory over a top-10 Clemson team. I mean, he's got an arm. He's comfortable in the offense. The players are definitely going to be more comfortable with him than a, a new freshman arriving. And he, again, more comfortable in the offense and just has more experience in college. He's not someone I think a true freshman should start over unless Nico is just the best, one of the best quarterbacks that come out of high school. I think Joe Milton is just is going to be better again because he has the experience and he's aware of the offense. He's aware has probably better awareness, and he's just so much better involved. Uh, has a much better relationship with both the offense and his team. Yeah, uh, I think that it's obvious that in in situations like this, experience is going to win the battle, and I think that. Joe Milton, though he doesn't have a ton of starting experience, I think just his experience in general around, you know, good teams is going to just kind of give him the edge. Whether Nico looks better in practice or whatever, it's going to be those high-pressure situations that Joe Milton's experience will kind of boost him over what Nico might be able to do. Yeah, I think experience is really what matters. It's the biggest thing that matters when it comes to being – a quarterback and honestly for any position at any level is experience always triumphs. Yep. All right. And then the next one, kind of a similar situation, Texas quarterback, Arch Manning. He's already on campus and he keeps losing his student ID, but <laughs> he's coming in as I want to say the highest rated second highest rated quarterback in this class. It's either him or Nico. And, look, it's obvious that Arch is a fantastic quarterback. But you still have a guy in Quinn Ewers who is only, what, two years older? He's only started one season, and he's looking to be a top guy in this next draft. You can't bench him. Yeah, and let's not forget, he got injured this past season. So he's going to want to play every single game he can play. Again, a Quinn Ewers was a top quarterback in his draft, or, or sorry, in his uh, class when he came out of high school. Now he's got, uh, I believe he has at least uh, three quarters of a season. Yeah. 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 So he's got about three quarters of a season under his belt. I mean, you need at least two full seasons in the in college for them for the NFL to look at you seriously. So I wouldn't be surprised if he just does has a great year but not an amazing year. If he stays for another year, 
And then that might be looking at, hey, Arch might hit the portal, you know? Who knows what we'll see. Yeah, or Quinn would hit it for the second time. There, there's really no telling what happens there. It comes down to, you know, who the coaches are favoring in that time. But I, I think that for next year, that spot's already gone. I think Quinn's going to have that spot. You know, obviously, if he just, you know, fucks up monumentally, of course, Arch will come in, you know, try and get something going. But I just, I don't see that happening. Yeah, I don't see um, Quinn Ewers not being the starter. As much as I don't like him, and I don't know why, he, there's something about him I just don't like. I think it's because he goes to Texas. Yeah, that's But he just... I, I think he's going to be the starter for as long as he's at the University of Texas. Yeah. All right. And then our next thing, just a little uh, little thing so that Brock can brag about the SEC. Uh, five-star <laughs> recruits by Power 5 Conference for the 2023 season. The Big Ten got one, which is very Big Ten to not get like any five-star recruits, but Ohio State and Michigan are probably still going to – be top teams in the next couple of years because it doesn't matter how they recruit because the Midwest is just such a, a gritty place to play football. So they get one five-star. The ACC comes in with four. Pac-12 gets themselves five. Big 12 gets seven, which is very good to see. The Big 12, you know, with all of what's going on right now, I'm sure that, you know, once Texas and Oklahoma leave, which we'll get to later, um, that, that number will probably go down. But the ICC comes in in first with 21 five-star recruits for the 2023 season. Yeah, something I want to say here is I'm – the college football landscape with adding the Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC is it is going to change the college football landscape dramatically because – all the top talent is now since it comes out of the Southeast, the vast majority of the top talent comes out of the Southeast. They're going to remain in the Southeast and including Oklahoma and Texas, two programs, especially in the last decade and traditionally top teams, they're going to continue to get these good players to stay at home and go play for them. So I think this may one day quite literally move the SEC to be the only team to produce champions again. The Big Ten, Big Pac-12, ACC, they have good guys in their recruiting areas. They have good players. They have good coaches. But with all that being said, when you have teams like Alabama and Georgia who have 25 five-star players on on their roster and then to uh, back them up or 40 four-star players, how is a team like TC, for example, this past season had a one five-star and I think like five – four stars on their entire roster. Are we just going to see the Georgia TCU national championship every year? So I think that's something very interesting that uh, coming forward and it's going to change. They're going to, I don't know what they're going to do. And it's especially the NIL. Now a lot of money is coming to these, these teams in the Southeast where these good, where these really good players want to stay. So we're definitely going to see how it goes. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, obviously with the how the transfer portal works now, it almost seems like recruiting has been put on the back burner, uh, at least when it comes to the media. But recruiting is truly still and always will be the backbone of a program. If you can't recruit, you're not going to win games. And 
you know, you can transfer in as many guys as you want, but, you know, recruiting builds for the future. That's what builds dynasties. Transfer portal builds one year. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll just have to see what the future holds. But, you know, in the meantime, the SEC is going to continue to dominate recruiting. And I don't see that changing whatsoever. Yep. You said everything exactly how I'd say it. All right. Well, next thing, just something that I want to brag about. Florida State's new defensive backs coach, a guy that you may have heard of, Patrick Sertan Sr., is helping recruit in South Florida for the Knowles, and it's going to be a big deal. He spent nine seasons coaching at American Heritage High School in South Florida, seven years as the head coach. Uh, that, that school is a prestigious professional athlete and NFL producer. Uh, just kind of recently, they've produced guys like Brian Burns, an FSU alum, uh, Greg Joseph, the kicker for the, um, the multiple teams in the NFL. Uh, I think right now he's with the Vikings. And then uh, Isaiah McKenzie, Sony Michelle, and then obviously uh, first-time Pro Bowler and the son of Pat Sertan Sr., Pat Sertan II. Um, I think that, you know, just he said that his experience in South Florida and, and knowing a lot of the coaches down there and the players and families is going to help Florida State out-recruit the other Florida schools and the rest of the Southeast that kind of patrol in those same areas. Because, look, South Florida is one of the best places for football recruiting and just high school football in general. And if Florida State can even pull in just a a little bit more than what they already do, there's a chance that they look real good. Yeah, I think right now the market in Florida is insane when it comes to the – colleges down there florida ucf miami and florida state all four the mainly the latter three i said miami florida state and florida all these players uh, everybody wants to stay home and now that these teams are good have good coaches are having you know a great are building great programs all these players want to stay at home so their families and and stay somewhere comfortable so their families can come watch and uh, all, all those little things is what these players are looking for. So, a lot of players now are, are wanting to are able to stay home in the, uh, in Florida. And I want to know how that's going to affect some of these other teams and the other other parts of the nation. Because, like you said, with Sertan going down, uh, having great connections in South Florida, that's good for Florida State. Uh, it's going to affect Miami a little, but I think Miami's still going to get their share. But how is this going to affect teams like Alabama and? Uh, and uh, even, you know, Georgia, LSU, the Carolinas, Tennessee, these players that come out of South Florida, now they have more and more reasons to stay in Florida. Why leave? Yeah, it's it's going to be huge. And, you know, we've already kind of talked about how bright the future is already at Florida State. Mike Norvell is doing a great job. But it's things like this that differentiate um, – a coach and his decision making, bringing in a guy that you know for you know his only experience as a coach is high school. Bring him in as the DB's coach and just have him help with recruiting. Obviously, he knows the game, but it's his connections that matter. You talk about it in you know every field that you go into. It's you know it's about who you know, and you know knowing people, knowing coaches, they're gonna vouch for you. And I, I think it's only going to help Florida State. And I think that, you know, this is another good sign that Mike Norvell has as a head coach and as a decision maker in the program 
that's going to keep boosting the success of Florida State. Yeah, I fully agree. And of course, I'm biased as hell, but I, I truly, <laughs> even if I wasn't a Florida State fan, I'd say this is a good move. All right. Yeah, no, that oh, that's a good move. Yeah. All right, let's talk. Uh, coincidentally, a Florida State alumni, Mac Brown. Um, he just got extended one more year to his contract. He'll be playing or he'll be coaching for UNC through the 27-28 season. And and look, I love to see it. Mac is a, a legend in college football, and he is you know one of the best coaches of all time. A national championship with Texas, countless other amazing teams, and he is a absolute like coach till he dies kind of guy. Yeah, and something. That I, I don't, I do not want to disrespect him in any way because he is one of the greatest coaches to coach. But I think something we know his age, he is in his mid 70s. Here soon, they're going to have to, uh, of course, you know, he's through 2029, but, or sorry, 2028. But they need to probably look at, hey, who is someone that we can bring in to replace you? No, I'm not a fan of the coaching waiting, but just say like, hey, uh, hire a young guy on your staff who you fully believe is has a lot of potential. You know, X Y Z. We will pay him to stay. We'll keep him in, and whatever and whenever you're ready, you know, retire. You know, like we, you're we're only signing you through this seat. We're you know we're only signing you through 2028. So you know before then, we'd like to have you train someone and be ready to take over the job from you. By this time, and after that, after 2028, you know, you're no longer going to be part of this program, and he's going to take in, so. And yeah, I, think I think that's something. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was just saying that, and I don't mean that any disrespect to him, but he's getting old. They, you know, he, he's not going to be around forever, you know, health concerns or something. You know, the littlest thing could be a health concern at that age. So I think they definitely need to bring someone in who, a young guy who can be their, their next coach for a long time, and he can help develop into the next great coach. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that uh, even if he, you know, stops coaching after that season in 27, 28, um, I, I do see him probably with the amount of time he's spent at UNC, probably just like doing maybe like um, uh, who is it? Uh, Bob Stoops at Oklahoma, where he's just kind of like the advisor or whatever. Well, of, it's kind of like of but, the football uh, team. Like what Vince Dooley did at yeah. uh, Kennesaw State. Exactly. He still a part of the football program, but just didn't wasn't not in the everyday you know everyday day to day operations of it. You know he'd come out help whatever, but his big you know it kept giving him something to do uh, every day, but he wasn't having to run a full football program. Yeah, I, I think that he is a, a true football guy, and. His legacy will live on past his coaching years. Uh, let's talk to a guy who has uh, an interesting legacy, Urban Meyer. Uh, he said he has, quote, in quotes, no desire to return to coaching. And you know what? Good. <laughs> Football no longer needs Urban Meyer. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, he's a good coach. I will give him that. I think he's very interesting. Uh, though he's, I mean, obviously won three national titles, two of Florida, one of Ohio State. Uh, you know, good coach, but I think at this point, for him, 
he's done everything he's wanted to do. He's won a national title. You know, he's basically built up two programs to championship level. He's coached in the NFL for a season. Like, what else is there for him to do? Yeah, exactly. And look, you can just go to Columbus, go to the bar he owns, and continue to finger bang Ohio State girls. Yeah. You know, he can live his life. That's If that's all he wants to do, hey, good for you, man. As long as you're consenting. Yes, exactly. Fuck Urban Meyer. All right, we can move on. All I'm right, I got two questions for you that I found on Reddit that I thought were great. Okay, first, what would you be willing to give up for your college football team to win a national championship? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. Here, I'll, I'll, like give a- you, I'll give you my ones. Okay, so I, I had a, a list of three things. First, probably like a pinky toe. I'd give up a pinky toe. All right. Uh, I'd give up the final third of one of my fingers. Like, if I do it on the left, like, you know, the final third of, like, I think it'd be funny to do my middle finger. <laughs> I just have, like, a little bit shorter middle finger. And then I don't have to deal with, like, Clipping the nails on one of my fingers. That'd be nice. And then uh, last one, uh, I actually, you know, maybe not. I said I'd give up sweet tea. That's not going to happen. Nope. Nah. I, I know myself too much. No, I, I could never give up something like sweet tea. I drink that way too often. <laughs> All right. That's well, what, the- would you be, what would you be willing to give up? Whether it be an appendage, um, uh, a, a drink, uh, anything. Yeah. I don't know if I could give up anything on my body for the greater good. <laughs> But uh, I could definitely give up like ever ha- like ever having a good basketball team. Mm. I would be perfectly content with literally like my basketball team going to the like making it like almost make it to the final four or almost make it to the playoffs and then just losing every game at the end of the season every year to just break my heart <laughs> to make it to win a national championship. All right. I like that. That's actually a really good answer. Mine was a little more um extreme even though like I've won a, I've won a national championship uh, 10 years ago. So I'm fine, but <laughs> hey, I've won, a, I've won a baseball championship. So I've won a women's soccer and women's softball. So you better watch out. Hey, I got women's <laughs> golf. All right. Next question. This one's good. Okay, if you could have a legal a legal drink. We're both 19. With two college football coaches, dead or alive, who would it be? And just before you answer, we are 19. So let's assume we're having a juice box that might taste like a particular light beer. No free shout-outs. I think the dead or alive, this one's very easy. Everyone would love to. uh, He just passed away, but Mike Leach. Mm -hmm. I think everybody. He's like 1-1. He's got to go number one overall. Yeah, he is the number one overall draft pick because do you know the amount of strange conversations you would have with this man? Yeah, dude. Uh, and then, oh, I forgot his name. He's the coach that has all those crazy sayings from like Wash from Oregon or Washington. Oh, I don't know. I, so one of the guys I thought it was like Mike Gundy from Oklahoma State. That'd be a good one. He's had some great press conferences for sure. Uh, I, Bob I, Green. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be a great Him pick. Leach. Him and Mike Leach would be an amazing time to 
have. Yeah. So mine, my two would be Mike Leach, of course, and then Ed O. Ed O, Ed o would probably have some crazy stories. To- <laughs> Just like, like that. hearing him talk. Like, imagine me, like, Ed Orgeron and Mike <laughs> Leach in one, just sitting at a table together. Dude, I'm just, I'm, I'm just imagining sitting at a table with Mike, or sorry, with uh, Ed Orgeron, just, and, be like, arr, arr, and they'd be like, huh? We'd be drinking juice boxes, <laughs> wink, wink, and dr- <laughs> like, he would force us to eat crawfish, and <laughs> it would just be like, just unintelligible sounds coming from Ed Orgeron. Uh, r- the most ridiculous things that could possibly come out of like Mike Leach's mouth. And then I would just be sitting there listening, just like daydreaming. Yeah, I would. That, that sounds like an amazing combo. Edo would be a great one to go out with. I think he would have. Because just think about all the crazy stories he could tell you. Yeah. He'd be oh, like, yeah, yeah, I remember when. Warren Sapp and The Rock decide to fight one another. What? It's <laughs> like something random like that. And you're just yeah, like, what? He'd, he'd talk about his law degree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so that, that was that that was a fun question. I'll keep trying to find some more hypotheticals like that. Because those ones are just like, it's a fun thing to think about. It takes the, the, the stress out of talking about sports. It's fun. Sports are fun. Yeah, they they are that. All right. Well, let's talk our top 10 running backs from the 2022 season. We're kind of continuing this series we've got going on. Last week, we did our top 10 quarterbacks. Next week, I think we'll do wide receivers doing running backs this week. We'll start it off at number 10. Who you got at number 10, Brock? I have Dwayne McBride from UAB. And I know very low for him to finish number two in the uh, – uh, rushing yards, 1,713 and 19 touchdowns. Extremely low, but he's only low because he's a group of five uh, player. Yeah, it's the competition that kind of hurts him there. And, and, you know, what is outstanding about his season is only 233 attempts. Like, that's over 100 less than the number one uh, Brad Roberts from Air Force and uh, almost 100 less than Mohamed uh, Ibrahim who had uh, like 50 less yards. So, yeah, an outstanding season from Dwayne McBride. But like you said, you know, being in a group uh, at a group of five school, not, you know, not even like one of the better group of five schools, it makes it hard for us to rank him higher. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so my number 10 is Devin A. Chain uh, from Texas A&M. I think that he did kind of underperform along with his entire team, but he was really the only bright spot for this A&M team. Uh, 196 carries, 1,102 yards, and eight touchdowns. He is an extremely skilled running back, a guy that I think is getting really underrated right now in draft talk. And after the combine, people will see his speed, they'll see his ability, and he'll probably jump up into maybe a mid-second round guy that some teams would might bite on. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into number nine. Who do you got at number nine? For my number nine, the best performance of a bowl game this postseason, Frank Gore Jr. Love that pick. Again, uh, ranked lower because of his conference. But uh, besides that, 
he had 228 rushes for 1,382 yards, averaging 6.1 yards a carry with nine touchdowns. Touchdowns, he could have some more of, but, I mean, when I watched him, he, he was a powerful running back. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful pick. He's in my list. But at number nine, I've got Will Shipley out of Clemson. I, I know that I've actually – I'm pretty sure I've talked about on this show that I am not really I – don't, I don't know what the word is, but I don't know. He doesn't jump off the page to me. He doesn't excite me with anything he really does. But he, he has undeniable stats, 210 attempts, 1,182 rushing yards, on, and 15 touchdowns. He had a tremendous impact, one of the few bright spots for this Clemson offense this season. I just kind of had to put him there because he puts up the numbers. Yeah, and I mean, he did it. He's had a good season, but I have to agree with you. There's nothing about him that makes me go, wow. Uh, he, he's, he, does, he has some good plays every now and again. He does some good things. But with that being said, I just feel like to me, he, there's no like big wow factor. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the same spot I'm in. All right. Who you got at number eight, Brock? Um, I hope I pronounce his name correct. Ty Tydre Spears from Tulane. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Ty uh, J or yeah, Ty J. Ty J Ty J Spears. I sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. But uh put him in here again, lower on my list. But uh, had a lot of rushing yards, but lower on my list because smaller conference. Yeah, he played some bigger teams this season, but I still group of five. The week in, week out, you're not going against the top defenses as opposed to uh, the other guys on my list. But he had a great season. He rushed 229 times for 1,581 yards, six and a half, sorry, six point nine yards per carry. Uh, very good. And had 19 touch touchdowns. Yeah, a uh, fantastic season and a big part of Tulane's success this year. Um, he, he was phenomenal. And then, yeah, for my number eight, I took Frank Gore Jr. there. Uh, he's an exciting player, man. He's not talked about a lot because he goes to Southern Miss. And, you know, he gets the attention in the bowl game. But, you know, the way that, like, not only does he run the ball fantastic, he's super fast. He throws the ball sometimes. He throws touchdowns for some reason. Uh, he can do it all. He can play well in the receiving game. He can run the ball amongst the best and also for some weird reason has an, uh, an impact on the passing game. Yeah. Yeah, That that's not what a running back should do, but he can. <laughs> all right. Who you got at seven, Brock? At seven, I have Raheem Sanders from Arkansas. Uh, I saw him firsthand. He is a very good running back. Uh, I believe he finished the season with 222 attempts for 1,144, or sorry, 1,443 yards, 6.5 yards average, and 10 touchdowns. He's quick and he's powerful. Another thing, he can uh, shed tackles. Uh, he can make something out of nothing. He's a very good running back. Yeah. The, the kind of one-two punch in the running game between him and quarterback uh, K.J. Jefferson, who is a really powerful runner at the quarterback position, it worked very well for Arkansas. It was a team that both of us talked about in our um, end-of-the-year grades for the SEC that we thought they played really well 
um, you know, given it is Arkansas and, you know, they're playing above expectations. Raheem Sanders, 100% a huge impact on that offense. Yeah, definitely. And then my number seven, I took Kendra Miller out of TCU. Uh, he didn't get the spotlight just because of Max Duggan and, you know, everything that was going on at TCU. But Kendra Miller was good all season. 224, one, or 224 carries, 1,399 rushing yards, an average of 6.2 per attempt, and 17 touchdowns. He was fantastic, especially, you know, and I know he got hurt, so he didn't play the national championship game, but, like, he had a string of five games in a row where he ran over 100 yards, 104 against Oklahoma State, 153 against Kansas State, 120 against West Virginia, 158 against Texas Tech, and then 138 against Texas. His impact was undeniable for this team. Obviously, Max Duggan is the storyline, but Kendra Miller was is what was there kind of boosting these guys up. Yeah. Uh, I have to agree. He definitely brought an impact to the game that I think would have been a little more noticed if he got to play in the cha- uh, championship game. Yeah. All right. Let's talk number six. Who you got? For number six, I have Deuce Vaughn out of Kansas State. I like the pick. I liked him. He may have been undersized, but the dude was quick and shifty, and he had very good vision. Something about him that I really liked is despite his size and because I believe he's only five six, he was quick. He could, he could, you know, juke it, juke just about anybody out. And he had great vision. And another thing for, that worked for him was he was so small, <laughs> he could hit those holes and somehow finagle a way out of it and run for another ten yards. Yeah, he's he amazing, would- especially after contact at his size. It's fantastic what he can do with the ball. Yeah, and just to give you his stats for the year, 293 attempts for 1,558 yards, 5.3 per attempt, and only nine touchdowns. And I think that nine touchdowns is also just because when you get inside the red zone, especially inside the 10-yard line, he, due to his size, he's not the guy that's going to be able to muscle it into the end zone. For sure. Uh, my number six, I took Israel Abanaconda out of pit. I think he looked phenomenal throughout the season. 239, 1,431 rushing yards, 20 touchdowns. He's got the speed. He's a pretty strong runner. There is a couple of questions in his game, but I think that he, uh, it's kind of like what you said about Deuce Vaughn, he's got good vision. And when it comes to uh, Izzy, he's got primarily it's his strength at open field. When when you don't really expect him to be able to do anything, he makes his decisions early. And that's what kind of separates him from others. He had a game against Virginia Tech, 36 attempts, 320 rushing yards. Wow. And six touchdowns. Wow. <laughs> and that outside is... of that one, he had so he played in um almost all of the games for Pitt. He played in um eleven games, I believe, and only had under a hundred and ten rushing yards two times. Wow. 
So, yeah, no, that's a phenomenal season from Israel. That is a very impressive stat uh, stat line of him. Yeah, uh, that's why he came in at number six for me. Uh, number five, I'm going to go ahead and say mine because it was your number six, Deuce Vaughn. Uh, similar to what I said about Izzy is his ability in the open field. Deuce Vaughn is a small guy. He's got speed, like you said, and it looks like whenever you're watching him, they if they give it to him on the outside and he's got open field ahead of him, the safety could be 15 yards away. He knows what he's going to do, and he reads those guys super quickly. His one-on-one ability is honestly almost unbeatable uh, when it comes to other running backs that I've seen play this season, and that's what differentiates him. You said it. Uh, he's really good. You know, After his first move, he does a lot. After the contact, he's great, and I think that... You know, though, like you said, his size is a concern. I think that his impact is undeniable. Yeah, definitely. All right, and then your number five, Brock. My number five, I said Chase Brown of Illinois. Uh, just their worker. Sorry, their work horse. Uh, I mean, dude had three hundred twenty-eight carries for one thousand six hundred forty-three yards, averaging five yards a carry, and I believe he only had ten touchdowns. Though he only had 10 touchdowns, I mean, he was obviously their work, 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 good grief, workhorse there on that offense, and that offense really relied a lot upon him. Yeah, he had a great season. I Honestly, I feel like I just kind of missed him on this list because, yeah, a fantastic season out of Chase Brown. Like you said, he was getting a ton of carries. He had a game where he had 41 carries for 180 um, uh, against Minnesota, and, yeah, he didn't have a single game this season under 60 yards, only two games under 100, one of those being 98 yards. And, yeah, a, a fantastic season, and consistency was the key there for Chase Brown. Yeah. All right. Let's talk to number our- four. This is where I have Muhammad Ibrahim from Minnesota. 320 attempts, 1,665 yards, a 5.2 yards per carry, and 20 touchdowns. The third third in the FBS, first in Power 5 in rushing yards this season. Fantastic. I also had him uh, at my number four slot. Again, another workhorse for the Minnesota team. Uh, he just showed up and balled out. That's about all there is to it. Yeah, he had two performances this season, over 200 rushing yards. One of those was a 202 performance with three touchdowns, the other being a 263 with one touchdown. And only two games, including the bowl game, under 100 yards. That's another fantastic season for another guy in the Big Ten who uh, a Minnesota team that, looked very good, especially through the first couple of weeks. Uh, they slid a little bit, losing to Illinois and Penn State, picked it back up in the second half, but they won their bowl game over Syracuse. Uh, he was a key to the offense of this team that definitely overplayed my expectations. Yeah, and I honestly believe, like, most every time here in Minnesota, I've, and they're doing amazing, it, it is like they have overplayed my expectations because I don't expect too much from them. Yeah. Who you got it for? Uh, 
that was I oh had yeah that's hot. right yeah yeah we got the same guy there okay and then I have a feeling our our top three is the same players we might have put them in a little bit of a different order I want you to go ahead and give me your three at my number three we had Blake Corum at my do you want me to do all three or just yeah yeah go ahead and do the all three because I'm sure we have the same three guys yeah for number three we had Blake Corum I mean what I believe he was a, uh, at one point in the season a potential Heisman candidate uh, one of the top running back uh was also a potential candidate for the uh oh what's it called for the running back award i I'm, I'm blank whatever right it now, is man. yeah he had the uh he had he was a potential candidate for that uh he played well all season uh he did get injured though didn't he uh yes so he played in um a majority of their games but uh got hurt I want to say he got hurt during the Illinois game, but he still played like the whole first half. And then he got like re-injured against Ohio state and then didn't play in the uh, championship or the conference championship or the uh, semifinal game. Yeah. I definitely think uh, him missing the semifinal game was a big, was a big uh, (laughs) missed opportunity there for Michigan. Yeah, he, he's definitely a game changer. Um, he put up 243 against Maryland for two touchdowns. And numer- in every performance after that up until the Ohio State game where he was hurt, he put up over 100. So an impact guy, a high carry guy after the first couple of weeks, he really differentiated himself. Uh, and, yeah, a guy that he's returning this year. And I, I think it's only up from here for Blake Corum. Yeah. Um, at number two, I had Quinshawn Jukins. Uh, nothing but – there's nothing bad to say about him. Amazing vision. Uh, amazing. One of the best players in the nation at breaking tackles and uh, yards after contact. He's quick. He's physical. He's everything you could want in a quarter – or sorry, in a running back. Yeah, and on top of that, Quinshawn was sharing the ball. Uh, Zach Evans a guy that – Came in, I what he finished uh, in the high 900s in rushing yards, and you know sharing the ball with Zach Evans, he still put up ridiculous numbers. Two games over 200, and just a, a true uh, like watching his style. Me and me and uh, Brock were talking about him before we started recording. Like the way that he gets the ball and stands there for a second, lets his offensive line open up a hole for him, and then just gets it at full speed like he gets up to speed quickly his top speed is ridiculous and then the way that he can you know adjust and make moves before you know he makes moves early and it helps him out so much he's solid in the receiving game with his speed it's not utilized all that much but he's a great check down guy if you need it and i genuinely think that what well, he's a true freshman this year Freshman. Yeah, he's got you know quite the next two years to go. And uh, before we get to number one, I think everybody knows what number one is. I want to do a quick honorable mention, and that being uh, the Air Force Academy's running back, uh, Brad Roberts, led the nation in rushing yards, 1,728. He had uh, 17 touchdowns. Uh, I mean, had a good season. Again, didn't really want to put him in here because he 
only uh, because he group of five and he also had 345 rushes and you know I, I just think it's a little different than some of these other players and of course he was a big uh, big time playmaker for the Air Force Academy but I think it's a little it's quite different especially a uh, triple traditional triple option team and then my other honorable mention uh, you actually just said was uh, Zach Evans uh, he battled through injury this year as well as having to split the ball with a phenom and Quinchon Juckin, just a someone that came out of out of the uh, you know out of left field. No one was expecting him to be as dominant as he was this year. And Zach Evans still had a great year for only I believe he only rushed a hundred and fifty times. Yeah, he rushed hundred and forty four times, nine hundred and thirty six yards, six and a half yards of carry, nine touchdowns rushing. Not to mention uh, all the yards he had in p- the passing game. He had a great season this year for Ole Miss, and he was definitely an impact for the team. All right. Let's go ahead and get into that number one, Brock. But number one doesn't really surprise anybody, I don't think. B. John Robinson of Texas. Yeah. Number one. It's number one running easy back. pick. Yeah. Everyone knew this one was coming. He's just. He's just so good. Yeah, uh, 1,500 yards or 1,580 on the season on 258, 18 touchdowns. He had 314 receiving yards on top of it. And look, like you said, number one draft uh, or number one running back in the draft. He's going to be an impact player. He's got, you know, he's got the strength. He's got the speed, the playmaking ability. He can beat you. He can truck you. And yeah, there's there's no stopping Bijan Robinson on the football field. Yeah, he is a monster. Yep. And you know, even though he missed a, a couple of games at the end of the season, um I, I think actually I think the only game he really missed was the uh the bowl game. But uh nonetheless, uh, a fantastic season that could have been even better. Uh a, a couple of tough ones he didn't have a very good game against TCU and um, uh, a tough two games to start the season elsewhere. Or otherwise, every other game over 100 yards uh, and two performances over 200, one being a 243 for four touchdowns. And yeah, it's obvious. Look, and I think what makes him the number one on this list is not only just the statistics, but the fact that he is going to the draft and he's highly touted. Yeah, uh, again, he's really good, and I'm excited to see him at the next level. Yeah, for sure. All right, and then, so your order was uh, Corum at three, Judkins at two, and Robinson at one. Uh, I All I had was it flipped a little bit, so I had Judkins at three, Corum at two, and Robinson at one. Uh, the only thing that really pushed Corum over Judkins for me was the national attention and the Heisman talk. That's the really the only thing that uh, put Blake Corum for me over Judkins. Yeah, that that makes sense. All right. Well, that'll conclude the running backs list, and let's talk some NFL news real quick. Not too much to talk about, but some interesting stuff. So we'll start it off. Oregon offensive line coach Adrian Clem is expected to leave for the New England Patriots. Clem is expected to receive a pay raise with the move back to the NFL. He has served as Oregon's associate head coach and run game coordinator this year. It seems like New England has a billion coaches every year. 
Yeah, uh, I have to agree. It always seems like they're getting a new coach or something, something of the, something like that. But it's, I mean, same with Alabama. The only difference is Alabama's still very dominant, while as opposed to New England's not quite as dominant as they have been. Yeah, that's uh, all it boils down to. Uh, next thing, Steelers assistant head or uh, assistant coach Brian Flores uh, is accepting the Vikings defensive coordinator job. I absolutely love this move. It's kind of the first step in Brian Flores's return. He got so fucked over in Miami. He shouldn't have been fired, first of all. Should not have been disrespected like he was. And should not have been manipulated by the front office. And he got, you know, just the worst break. And then, you know, for this past season, he kind of got blackballed because of the lawsuit. So uh, ended up as a special assistant on... Uh, the Steelers, and I think this defensive coordinator job with the Vikings is just the, the first step in him getting back to a head coaching job. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. He did get screwed over in Miami, and like you said, this is the these first of a few steps for him to be back as a head coach somewhere. All right, next one, a one that I think kind of hits for both of us. A.J. Green has announced his retirement from the NFL, and it, this sucks. He was a guy that uh, – I, I really liked when he came out of UGA and while he was at UGA. Um, and it really sucks that injuries just ruined his career because he started off pretty well and he balled out at UGA, but he just could not stay off the injured list. Yeah. You know, I, I a lot of my memories for him, especially because I never, I've always been more of a college football guy is when I was little and I watched him when, uh, when he was at Georgia. And of course, that was when I first started watching football, my earlier memories on football. So there's not a lot, but definitely I've always remembered the name because of it. Yeah, like that offense with him, Matthew Stafford, and Sean Marino. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> the awesome one. All right, a little bit of Super Bowl news. Uh, the Chiefs have activated Clyde Edwards-Alaire off the IR, and they placed Miko Hardman on the IR, which is obviously ending his season I think this is not good for the Chiefs. Obviously, you know, losing a wide receiver is not going to be good for a team, but they need all of the options they can in the receiving game. And, you know, getting Clyde Edwards-Alaire back gives this offense another dimension that, you know, could make them play very well in the Super Bowl, but it's going to be hard to incorporate him back into the offense after so long on the injured list. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, after a long being out for so long it is gonna take him a while to get back and especially now that they're we're less than a week away from the Super Bowl. Uh so I really hope for their sake he can get uh Edward Tolaire can get back in and get back into the swing of things quickly so they can effectively use him. But uh I think losing receiver, especially an experienced receiver, it might affect them a little bit in the in the uh Super Bowl. Yeah, I think that Patrick Mahomes thrives when he's got a lot of options on the field because when he gets into positions where he has to force the ball to Travis Kelsey or uh, any other guy, it makes it extremely hard for any quarterback in general. When you have to force the ball to one guy, it makes it really tough. But when you have guys all over the field that you know you can rely on to catch the ball, it makes your life a whole lot easier and it makes it harder on the defense. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right, next thing, Devontae Adams just baiting us. Uh, he said, playing with Aaron Rodgers again would be a dream scenario. And it's just so annoying 
when guys do this in the offseason. Look, everybody wants to play with Rodgers till he shows up on ayahuasca and just causes problems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't want one of the best quarterbacks of his generation to play for their team, for, to play with? But I don't know. I, I, I'm very intrigued with the whole Rodgers situation right now, and I'm, I'm very interested to see how this w- goes for him. <laughs> yeah, I got a little more information about Rodgers. He had quite the day. So – We'll start off. He shut down a fake tweet uh, about him telling his agent he wants to go to the Raiders. Uh, He said that he hasn't spoke to his reps since the season ended, which is weird that he hasn't talked to them. Uh, And this next thing I'm about to tell you is probably why he hasn't talked to him. He went on the Pat McAfee show and said he's going on a isolation retreat or a darkness retreat in a couple of weeks. It'll be four days long, complete darkness, alone in a little house. Uh, he was quoted as saying, I've had a number of friends who've done it and they had profound experiences. And um, so he will make his decision on playing next year during his retreat and uh, come back having made up his mind. Does he think he's Thad Castle can do a vision quest? Like, <laughs> like does he forget that he's not a character in a TV show? This is real life. That's hilarious like it's so funny because like remember when everybody thought that like tom brady was weird because like the tb12 method was weird like this makes tom brady look like a normal human like brady doesn't drink coffee and people think he's a monster aaron Rodgers like macrodoses mushrooms and ayahuasca and sits in a (laughs) south american rainforest in the pouring rain to decide what he wants for dinner and we think tom brady's weird for not drinking coffee yeah (laughs) there's something about being a quarterback man i've said it for a while now every quarterback in the world is just it's a weirdo in some way form or fashion yeah it's it's interesting i i honestly at this point i just think roger's gonna retire and become a monk yeah i think that's (laughs) basically all he wants in life at this point it seems to be his trajectory (laughs) all right well, we'll move on from Rogers losing his mind to um, some some pretty cool cool news for us. Uh, a record fifty point four million U.S. Uh, or it doesn't say U.S. I'd assume it's probably just in the U.S. Uh, adults are betting a combined sixteen billion dollars on the Super Bowl already. Wow! So you know the emergence of sports betting. Obviously, we're not allowed to partake uh, due to age and the state we live in. But with the you know growing and growing uh, landscape of sports gambling, it, it's obviously pulling in some money. Oh yeah, I can only imagine how much these legal states are making in taxes by allowing it. Yeah, and and just you know, if you're the guy who has contributed to that sixteen billion, just remember to know your odds. And uh, if you have any gambling issues, call one eight hundred Gambler um, to deal with any of those problems. It can be a scary thing for sure. Yeah, gambling is no joke. All right, well let's move on. So Mark Andrews said in an interview that he wants the Ravens to find a passing offensive coordinator so that they can rewrite the narrative that Baltimore is a bad place for a wide receiver. What do you think about this one, Brock? Um, That's an interesting uh, comment. Yeah, uh, 
why would you want to change something that's been working though? Obviously, having Lamar Jackson in there and using utilizing him in the run game, and when you need him for passing, and he's a very efficient passer, why not keep what's working? Yeah, uh, you could say it's working, but you know where's the proof? There's no Super Bowls, not even an AFC Championship appearance. It, yes, it's working enough, but I, I do kind of agree with Mark Andrews. I think that. Uh, an offense where maybe a better balance of passing the ball and running the ball would work a little bit more. Uh, guys like Hollywood Brown, like he looked really good while he was in Baltimore, but it was a small sample size because he didn't get the ball a lot. And if Baltimore wants to attract, you know, top level wide receivers, they need to, you know, build a culture of top level wide receivers playing there. Yeah. And what I meant by my statement is, uh, you you said it better. You put it much better way. They needed to, they need a better, uh, better integrate both sides of passing and throwing the ball. They need to be closer to equal as opposed to dominantly running. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the key to that offense, uh, and, and we'll see. They've interviewed a couple of different guys. I think Todd Munkin would be a great fit. But uh, let's move to another coaching job. The 49ers, uh, they plan to hire Steve Wilkes as the defensive coordinator. He was the interim head coach for the Panthers, uh, I believe the defensive coordinator there. And I think this is a good move. Um, he's a great fill-in for D'Amico Ryans. Obviously, D'Amico Ryans at this point seems irreplaceable. But um, you know, with the talent they have on that defense, I'm sure that Steve Wilkes will do a great job with it. Yeah, I'm sure... With the amount of talent there is on the defense, you can't really you. It's gonna be very hard for them to mess that up. Yeah, that's uh, it. Only makes sense, you know. Those guys are kind of mm-hmm. locked in at least for this next year, so we'll see how they look. But uh, let's talk a little bit more. Uh, a guy playing in the Super Bowl, Eagles cornerback Darius Slay, said that he still feels disrespected by Matt Patricia. Now the um, whatever he is, I don't even know. Um, didn't he get fired? I don't even know if he has a job anywhere, but, um, he basically just said, uh, this was, uh, Darius Slay's quote. He basically just said, you are not in that category yet at the time. I had only one pro bowl, but now I'm at five. So I want to know how he feels about that now. Like, yeah, <laughs> dude, what Darius Slay was good when he was in Detroit. So I don't know what Matt Patricia was talking about, but. Obviously, he doesn't know defense. Yeah, uh, obviously. Can't talk shit on big pe- big play slay. <laughs> All right. This one interested me a lot. So, um, reports are saying that the appropriate figure for Daniel Jones is believed to be somewhere between 35 and $37 million per year. Uh, that comes from two executives familiar with the quarterback market. Uh, they told that to SNY. I think that's a lot of money. I, look, I you guys have heard me plenty of times this year talk very highly of Daniel Jones and how he's played. $35 million is a lot. Yeah, I've talked a lot of crap on Daniel Jones, and he is a good quarterback, and he, he keeps improving, but I don't know if he's $35 million. Yeah, I think that's a crazy number. Like, let's see. Patrick Mahomes 
right now, every year, um, he's making around, well, let's see, like five. No, that's not right. That can't be right. 40. Okay, yeah, 40 sounds about right. So he's making around 40 to 45 million a year uh across this contract that goes until uh 2031 and i like how do you think that daniel jones is even five million dollars less than patrick mahomes (laughs) obviously someone on drugs said that one (laughs) yeah that's it's a crazy take i think he's great i think maybe 28 would work 30 but no not 35 or 37 that's a ton of money yeah, no, he he's well. Keep him way under thirty. I say above twenty, but way under thirty. All right, here is another one. <clears throat> this one is in regards to Lane Johnson. Uh, a couple of people were trying to say that he kept false starting in the uh, NFC Championship game, and um. This was a great quote about it. It says, uh, if the speed limit's 40 miles per hour and you're going 45 miles per hour and you don't get pulled over, are you speeding? And and look, I I think it's that people don't understand how the false start penalty works because offensive linemen can, like, they can move a little bit, but they can't, like, well, I'm sure you know this rule a little bit better than me, but they can't, like, fully commit. They can kind of move their foot or something. So, like, the biggest thing with it is they can't do anything that would draw the defense off sides or anything, like, very blatant. Like, if you put your hand in the ground, you can't stand up from that point. That'd be a false start. You can't do anything, like, big, but, like, little movements of the hands you're allowed to do, but you can't make it look like you're about to, you're, you know, about to, like, set in a block. Yeah, I think Lane Johnson just knows his offense he knows the snap counts and he is just genuinely a fantastic offensive lineman that's why he looks like he's going before everybody and before the ball snap but he's going simultaneous with the snap yeah he, he's just fantastic that's gonna do it for some nfl news brock since you won't be on uh, on Friday's episode, I want to get your Super Bowl predictions. Anything you got to say about the Super Bowl, and then of course, obviously, uh, we'll talk about it next week. Um, the aftermath. I actually think this is going to be a better Super Bowl as compared to uh, as previous years. Uh, two number one teams: uh, the Eagles, very powerful offense; Mahomes and the uh, Kansas City, very powerful offense. I think the big decision again, their defense, the uh, Kansas City defense is good, but I think the Eagles' defense is just better, and I think that's what's going to give the Eagles the edge and win by I think about five. Okay, so what's that final score going to be? Uh, I think it was be thirty-one to thirty-six. Okay, Eagles on top. All right. He's got the birds. Go birds. Yeah, grease those poles, uh, Philadelphia. All right, and you'll hear my Super Bowl prediction on Friday with Luke. Let's get into this new segment. This new segment is called 
do you remember? So we'll choose, you know, kind of anything, a player, a season, a game, moment, team, anything that may have just slipped through the cracks of sports history. And look, I just think this is going to be a fun way for, you know, us to research history and share it with the listeners. And it's going to be something fun to, you know, reminisce on, you know, guys, maybe, we even forgot about or we never got to see play just to learn more about the history of the sports that we love. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great segment and a lot of fun to just, you know, reminisce on, you know, the <laughs> a lot of these players to bring back good memories. All right. I'll start it off and I'm going to start off with a guy that honestly, like I've heard his name before and I've heard of how good he was at, at points, but he's not a name that is synonymous with like the top guys at his position it's it's going to be priest holmes priest holmes had an interesting nfl career uh started off with the the ravens and then went to the chiefs and that's where he really blew up so a 10-year career four with the ravens six with the chiefs and outside of his three seasons of greatness uh in 01 through 03 he only started 36 games in seven seasons and, or sorry, and then from 2001 to 2003, he started 46 games in those three seasons. And, and Brock, you're just going to be absolutely amazed by the statistics I'm about to read to you. But to start it off, the accolades. The first, in those three seasons, he stacked up three Pro Bowls, three All-Pro first teams, and two top five MVP voting finishes. Wow. And so in 01, he had 327 carries for a league-leading 1,555 rushing yards. He had eight rushing touchdowns, 97.2 rushing yards per game. He had 62 receptions for 614 receiving yards, two receiving touchdowns. And he led the league in total yards with 2,169. Wow. And then he follows that, it up. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, that is impressive. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. And then in 2002, he follows up that fantastic year with an AP Offensive Player of the Year. He puts up better numbers in less games. He only plays 14 games in twenty twenty or in 2002. He puts up 313 carries, 1,615 rushing yards, League leading 20 run, 21 rushing touchdowns, 115.4 yards per game, and on top of it, 70 receptions, 672 receiving yards, three receiving touchdowns, and a league leading 2,287 total yards, as well as a league leading 24 total touchdowns. And he was not the MVP, just the offensive player of the year? Yep. Wow, that's like that is literally MVP caliber um uh stats right there. Yeah, that tells you about the uh the quarterback bias. Yeah. And then somehow he does it again. T- 2003, the year that me and you were born. <laughs> he put up 320 carries, 1420 rushing yards a league-leading 27 rushing touchdowns, 74 receptions, 
690 receiving yards, 2,110 all-purpose yards, and with no receiving touchdowns, he led the league in total touchdowns. Wow. I believe at that time he might have set the record for rushing touchdowns this season. Maybe it was second to, I want to say, LaDainian Tomlinson's 28 or 29 in a season. But yeah, 27 rushing touchdowns is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, that is insane. And then the aftermath of those three seasons were injuries. Uh, He was having a fantastic season in 04, and, and then he hurt his knee in the eighth game of the year. Uh, misses the rest of the season, comes back in 05, and he hurts himself again, but this time it was super serious. He had a spinal column injury. There was a result of a a helmet-to-helmet hit from Sean Merriman. He ends up missing the the rest of the 05 season, the entire 2006 season. He tried to come back 2007 to no avail, and in February of 2007, he was officially retired. So four years... After, actually, less than four years after his last of three amazing seasons, he was officially retired from the game. Wow. And, I mean, hey, it's amazing just what injuries can do to a player. And it's very important that players do take care of themselves because there is a life after football. Yeah, you you can't play football your entire life. That's for sure. Yeah, Tom Brady is a prime example of that. But, yeah, that is impressive that he had such good statistics for three years. I mean, it's always that, you know, what if he didn't get hurt? I'm sure he would play for another eight years and just be amazing. But, you know, we would never know because of, you know, injury. Yeah, but it's crazy. Like, I had heard of Priest Holmes plenty of times. Uh, I knew he had one of the higher uh, rushing touchdown totals in a season. But – I, I didn't know that he was this good. Yeah. Like, I've heard of the name before, but again, uh, to exactly what you said, I had no clue he was that good. All right, Brock. Well, let's talk about yours. Your first ever Do You Remember? My Do You Remember uh, goes to a Ole Miss player that got nationwide attention uh, his junior year was an AP All-American. Uh, he In that season, he had 50 solo tackles, 21 assists for a total of 71 touchdowns, 70, a total of 71 tackles with an average of, or sorry, with four and a half for a loss uh, and six interceptions and uh, two forced fumbles. And then his senior year, he had 44 solo tackles, 20 assists for a total of 64 total tackles, uh, four for a loss, three interceptions, for one brought back for a touchdown, and one forced fumble. And this player being uh, Cody Pruitt. I'll be honest, I've uh, never even heard of Cody Pruitt. Really? Yeah. Wh- wait, 20- when did he play? He played 2011-2014. Uh, gotcha. He, he was the leader of the, uh, of the Ole Miss defense ex- uh, back in the early Hugh Freeze days. He was one, part of the uh, – one of the first uh, – he got there a year before Hugh Freeze got there, I think. Uh, and he led 
was the first big leader of the quote land shark defense of that time. Love he the was land quick. Shark defense. Oh yeah, he he was their leader. He was really good. Uh, two time AP All American. What uh, what ended up happening? Like, did he go to the league and just do nothing? He went to the league, did uh, undrafted free agent, signed practice squad for one year, and just that he didn't make it. I guess. That's crazy because those stats are ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, he was in 2013. His six interceptions was number one in the SEC. That is crazy. Yeah. He had um he he had some good great stats. I'm really surprised he never uh was able to do anything uh in the pros. He never made it even a few years on the practice squad or anything like it. He just uh one year on practice and I guess there was something about him they didn't like, but he helped lead Ole Miss to the twenty fourteen season with the legendary uh game where they beat Alabama. Uh, twenty-three to seventeen. One game every Ole Miss fan can remember that has all the crazy pictures of us rushing the fields and all of that. Uh, he was the leader of that defense and one that really I would love to have back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was a fantastic pick, and we'll continue to do this um, throughout the year. Maybe, you know, if we get some good feedback, we'll just keep on doing them. Uh, it's so much fun to go back through history, even if it's recent, and, and just talk about guys that, you know, maybe have slipped through the cracks. But that's going to do it for the first ever installment of Do You Remember? Let's get into Stake Your Claim, and then we'll get out of here. I'm going to go ahead and stake my claim that Tommy Reese will become a head coach within the next four years because of a fantastic couple of years as Bama's offensive coordinator. Yeah, I fully believe that. I mean, that's why that's why coaches go to Alabama, much like why players go to Alabama, because they are going to move on to bigger, better things. Yeah, in, you know, in the last, what, how long has Saban been there? 11 years now? He's been there since... 2007, I believe, was his first 2007, year. So, like 15 years. Um, it, it's just the breeding grounds for greatness. Uh, we've seen it across college football. Uh, at some point, we'll go through Nick Saban's coaching tree in, in probably not its entirety. It'd take forever, but, you know, the highlights of it. And it, it's crazy how much of an impact his you know, assistants have had on the college football landscape. And I think Tommy Reese is just going to be the next one. He's led good teams at Notre Dame. Uh, he's a young guy, a former quarterback. He's got a great mind for the game. And yeah, I just think that if he can really get it going at Bama, maybe win a natty or two, he's going to be a head coach somewhere, probably in the SEC. Yeah. There's always places in the SEC especially, looking for a great coach to come and usually to help them beat Alabama. Now it's to help them beat Alabama or Georgia, both of them. Yeah, and I think the best thing about coaching at Alabama is helping your recruiting. It, it seems like all of the guys that come out of Saban's tree 
are also fantastic recruiters. Kirby Smart, of course, being one of them, but numerous other guys on other occasions have just become even better at their job and really like, you know, every dimension of being a coach in football, they just get better when they're at Bama. And I think Tommy Reese is going to do it. Yeah, I have to agree with you. All right, Brock, what's your claim this week? I texted you something and I cannot find it. <laughs> okay. Let me Do you look. remember what I t- any outrageous claims I've texted you recently? I'm sure there's been plenty. All right, Grayson. I forgot exactly what I had. I did not save it in chat between us. And I really wish I was because I can. I remember something extremely controversial that I that was going to pan out for me, and I cannot remember. But here is something I do believe in, and I believe it with all my heart. No matter how good a recruit Shane Beamer gets, and no matter how good of a coach he is, and he can hire, they will not win a championship. I think that's a pretty fair statement. With how loaded the SEC is, I can't see South Carolina really winning anything. Like They're not going to be the best team in the East. They're definitely not going to be the best team in the SEC, and they're most definitely not going to be the best team in the nation. I think that they'll have a couple of good years, but, um, yeah, there's there's no chance that they go any further. Yeah, it's going to be just like when Steve Spurrier was there. They're going to have great recruiting classes. Well, not, well, yeah, they had a good one this year. They're going to get good players and do things, but they're never going to make it to the championship, and I really just cannot even see them going to an SEC championship. Yeah, uh, I think that the East is really looking good right now. I just don't think South Carolina is going to be able to contend with Georgia, of course, and then Tennessee. Um, Those are really the two main ones. But, you know, if we see a little bit of realignment come through, the possibility of Auburn possibly going into the East, um, that would still really not help South Carolina's chances. And even if they go into a... Uh, a no division system like other conferences are doing now, it, South Carolina is going to have a less chance. So yeah, I think that it's going to stay, you know, the normal guys up at the top. It's going to be your Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, LSU teams like that are going to stay at the top. And I think South Carolina could end up, you know, pushing one year. Maybe they have a year where they like, they'll start out maybe, you know, six and oh, seven and oh, uh, and then they'll run into Georgia, and they'll run into Tennessee, and then the season's just going to be over from there. You know what I just remembered? What? Exactly what I was going to say. Okay, as well, no. You... Write it down right now and save it for next week. Yes, this is this is going to be my more favorite take because I think it's going to pan out. All right, we'll write it down. We'll talk about it next week. It'll build some uh, – some suspense so if you want to hear what Brock has to say tune in next week you'll hear it yes you will and you'll agree with it all right well that's going to do it for us anything else you got for the people Brock no nothing but just tune in next week I'm really excited to talk about this take I have all right and remember just like I said at the top of the episode make sure you're following and leaving five stars on Spotify and Apple podcasts Uh, make sure you're you know, downloading every episode, whatever it takes. Tell your friends about the episodes. Tell your parents to listen. Give your dog a, a, an iPhone and some headphones. Maybe he wants to listen. 
And remember to follow us on all the socials, keep you updated on everything. And once again, look out for that Patreon. You guys keep listening, and we will keep supplying you with the content. It's going to do it. Peace. Peace.